All right, guys, you can take a seat. Open up your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. So there should be some Bibles around if you need one, or you can swipe up and open your phone. James 1, we're looking at verse 18 through 21 today, and we're in our series called The Awakening. And what this series is about is about waking up and becoming who you're made to become. There is a version of you that you are made to become, and and James is pressing in on us to become that version of ourselves. And, And today, we see how he wants our friends and us together that we are all moving in this direction. So, James 1 is where we're going. And what I want to tell you first is to just tell you everything that James has said so far, as quickly as I possibly can. So James starts out this letter, and he says something wild and crazy. He says, count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Joy in the midst of the trials. Now, here's what he's getting at. There is a version of you that you are meant to become. The heavenly version of you, and you are supposed to press on to become that version of you. And that is your aim in life, that's your goal, that's your purpose, that's what you're fighting for. And what he says is these trials that you go through will help transform you, they'll refine you, and they will help you become who you're made to become, so long as you are standing with faith. So count it as joy when they come because you're going to be transformed by the trials themselves. So that's how he's saying, think about trials this way, but then he says, now look, that's really hard to do, or we know that that's hard to do. So he, he tells us of the alternative. And the alternative is, if you don't see your trial as a test, that if you pass will transform you, then that same trial won't morph into a test, but it will morph into a temptation. And if you give into that temptation, it will deform you. It will make you less human, human, less of who you're made to become. And so we need to stand firm in the midst of trial. So how do we do that? Well, he says to do this. He says, look backwards to your experiences that you have had of God. Hold on to them tightly and bring them up into the present. Like take your faith experiences of the past, bring them up into the present, hold on to them. And then he says, look forward to the future hope where there's no more hurting death or pain and hold on to both of these tightly. And if you do, look what happens. The wind of trials come, but you have two things to hold on to and you're not going anywhere. Now, there's a guy named Nietzsche. He's a philosopher and He's not alive anymore, but he's the one who said, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And that is true so long as you have something to hold on to in the midst of a trial that comes. Now, Nietzsche was an atheist, and so here's what he said. We, have to, we all have to find faith in something. And so what he says is essentially put your faith in yourself. Become this uber person, this uber man, and if you could do that, well, you could get through it. Only here's the irony of it. He put his faith in himself, and at the end of his life, it was himself who took his own life. So, I wonder what would have happened if Nietzsche had someone to hold on to like Christ. I wonder what would have happened if he had a community of people, the church, who were fighting together alongside each other through the midst of the trials that they were going through, encouraging each other, bearing each other's burdens. I wonder what would have happened to him if he had that. And that's what we're talking about today. To have people, a band of brothers and sisters, who face 
trials together. Who stand as faithful warriors on the front lines against depression, anxiety, pain, loss, heartbreak, sin, and death. And so today what we're doing is we're making a shift to talking about trials and how you handle it as an individual, to making the shift in how together as a community we should walk through trials together. So here's our verses. James 1, 18 through 21. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, first of all, what I'd like us to consider is that very rarely do we experience friendship the way we are meant to, at least the way that the Bible talks about. The way the Bible talks about friendship, generally speaking, reaches to the heights beyond what many of us have experienced from our friends. And the church is meant to be a group of friends, a group of unlikely friends, that is, who are called the first fruits of creation. Now, this word first fruits is important for us to understand this. So in the Old Testament, go back. What the Bible kept saying is, Whatever your first fruits are, that means the first 10% of whatever you get, set it aside as belonging to God. So by us being called the first fruits, listen here, listen, listen. By us being called the first fruits, it means that we belong to God. Together, all of us, we are bound to each other. The Spirit of God dwells in every single Christian, and that means we are bound to one another. That means no matter what, you can't get rid of me, you can't get rid of the people in this room, all the misfits that you see here, you're stuck with them. That's what he's telling us. We're bound to one another. So we are fellow travelers. Friends on our way, traveling to paradise, traveling to the promised land, but we're traveling through the wilderness of this life, through the trials of this world, until we get to the place where we need to get to, where we got our eyes fixed. Eden. And more than that, we're not just pilgrims that are heading home, but there's something else we have to do. We have to take Eden and bring it into the present and bring it into now. And so what it looks like then is us standing side by side, fighting for each other and fighting to bring Eden into this world. So this is contrasted with friendship from this world or friendship. What what the world tells us friendships should look like. And what the world says, friendships should look like essentially business relationships. So this is how it typically goes down. So everybody's trying to build their own little thing, their own kingdom, their own empire. And in, in order to do that, you've got to have success, you've got to have some power, and you've got to have some influence. And so what, what people do is they look around and they say, who could I be friends with that would help me get what I want? Who could help me get the things that I want in order to build up my kingdom? So they don't seek God's kingdom, but seek their own. And they look for people who will help them. And so what ends up happening is friendships in this world start looking like this. I want this, and you will help me get that. And you want this, and I will help you get that. So therefore, it makes sense for us to be friends because it's mutually beneficial that we be friends. 
But biblical friendship is much different. In biblical friendship, you find a mutual aim, a mutual telos, a mutual goal, a vision that everybody at the same time is fighting for. Instead of it being some, someone fighting for this and someone fighting for that and someone fighting for that and using people to get what they want, in the kingdom of God, and when you're a Christian, you're aiming at the kingdom of God together. So friendship is about a shared vision. So you see this just practically speaking. Sports teams have a camaraderie. And that camaraderie happens because there's a mutual aim of winning. And so it builds great friendships. And what Christian community is doing is reaching to the highest aim that you could possibly reach, the kingdom of God, and saying, let's fight for that together. And as you do that, well, what happens is you start to, to form these really strong and great friendships. And by the way, so this, this, I always see this happen. So we're going through something, I'm preaching through something, and it's about you, the individual. and Everybody's just soaking it up. And as soon as I start talking about the kingdom of God coming, people are like, ah, oh. like I could just see it in people's faces. Like, this isn't less important for me. This isn't relevant for my life. And what James and what the Bible is trying to convince you of is it's actually the most relevant thing for your life. And if you will join with people around you, you're going to find that to be true. So watch, let me show you. Go back to verse 4. Verse 4 tells us that we have to go on to perfection, meaning through the trials, we're being perfected. Each trial perfects us a little bit more. So here's the problem with transformation. You want to be transformed. But if you aim at transformation, it doesn't work. If you aim at growth, it doesn't work. You have to aim at God also at the same time. And what James is telling us now is don't just aim at God. Don't just aim at your transformation. But aim at a community of people that are seeking to bring the kingdom of God amongst them. And if you do that you'll find yourself being transformed. If you seek a fellowship of hope in the midst of despair, a society of faith that fights against the plaguings of doubt, and friends who are sacrificially committed to loving each other in the midst of a world that's filled with hate, you're going to find yourself being transformed far more than you th thought you could be. So what is it? It's a picture of three friends sailing the ocean, looking for the lost land of Eden. Or it's a picture of an army of friends who see this hill that has been taken. And that hill belonged to God, but it doesn't any longer. And so they say, how can we take back this hill for the kingdom of God? And so what happens is each individual person, you, you go off. And you go to your, your home, you go to your neighborhood, you go to your workplace, you go to wherever with your friends. You're just doing the things that you do, but you're seeking to bring Eden to those places. You're seeking to bring the kingdom of God to those places. And then you get back with your friends and you say, hey, how are you doing? How can I encourage you with this? How can we be together fighting for this to happen? And that would be amazing. If that was happening, it would be so amazing. And what would be even more amazing is if a group of you, a group of friends, said with complete intentionality that they're going to do this, what would it look like for us together, the five of us, the six of us, whatever, what would it look like for us to seek to bring God's kingdom into this world? Like, what can we do together? I'm telling you, you ask that question, you're going to find yourself two years from then. If you kept, kept at it, you're going to be fully, you're going to be way more transformed than you would have been if you just, well, went it alone. 
the constant refinement of the individual through the collective effort of trying to bring Eden back. This world is meant to be our home, and it was taken from us. Evil's taken it. It's gone. It's not, it was meant, this was meant to be Eden expanded over all the earth. And we failed at it. And now that job is for us to do it again. And so we've got to fight to take back our homeland. And we do it together. And we celebrate along the way. We eat and we're merry and we just have fun together. We celebrate all the ways that we've succeeded. Okay, so when you go to take back your homeland together, you are all going to face trials. And some of those trials are going to take you down. And some of you are going to be on the battlefield of life. And you're going to be wounded and you're going to be on the ground. And you're going to need your friends to come and bring you something to nurse you back to health. Or you're simply going to be standing there in the battlefield of life and you need a weapon. And God's word is both the thing that heals your wounds that your friends bring to you. And it's also the weapon that you stand and fight for your friends and beside your friends. Scripture, the Bible, God's word, this right here. So verse 18 says that we are all brought forth, meaning we're brought into the light, meaning we're brought into life by the very words of God. And then verse 21 says to receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it was just saying, be quick to hear. And what this is saying is that the church, you, your friends, your friends are meant to be this to you. They're meant to bring God's word to you. And you have to be listening for it, and they speak it to you, and they save your souls. And your friends are the ones who are supposed to do this. Now, we saw last week. So we saw death last week is after all of us. It's watching you, stalking you. It wants to catch you. I mean, it, it is after you. And the only reason that you are here sitting in the seat right now is the mere pleasure of God has held death off of you. But death wants you bad, and so death is smart, death, death is cunning. So what death has done is gone fishing for you. That's what James says. He casts out a lure, and death is smart, and so death wiggles this lure around in such a way that stirs up your desires, and you can't help it. And so you go for it, you take it, and you take that lure, and here's exactly what happens. James says, you become impregnated. Your desires is like an egg that becomes impregnated by this lure, and that makes you pregnant with temptation. And then watch this. I mean, this is pretty disturbing imagery, but then you become pregnant, and you give birth to sin. And that sin, you carry it around with you in your life, and then... It grows up, and eventually sin stands up over you, fully matured as death, and it takes you out. This is telling us that it is your friends who are bringing God's word to you, and meant to implant it in your soul, who are going to rescue you from that very, sin, that, that very thing. So your friends are way more important than you realize to you. Someone's crying out for a friend back there. Biblical friendship is about doing an operation on your friends in the midst of a war. And they're wounded out on the battlefield. And you go out there as a medic and you bring God's word to them to heal them, to heal their weary souls. Or your friend is out there and 
death and sin have a hold of them. And so you have got your weapon of God's word and you chop death and sin off of them in order to free them from it with God's very word. Or you just simply stand side by side by your friend holding nothing but God's word, you and them side by side holding on to the scriptures. The people in this room need you to be that to them. And they might not admit it, and they might not see the need for you to operate on them with God's word, and they might try to fight all their battles alone, but what they really need is you. And here is the problem of why we don't have friendships like this. Because we don't think we need them, or we don't want to need them. It's our pride. It says to receive the word in meekness, or in humility, in other words, without pride. So what stops you from receiving the implanted word of life? It's your pride. And you got a lot of it. And it's stopping you from receiving the word. And so your friends are your spiritual medics out on the war field. And they're trying to help you with God's word. But what are you doing? You're shutting it down. You're not listening to them because of your pride. When you run into battle alone without your friends, it's because of your pride. But the one who isn't prideful is characterized by James as someone who is quick to listen, slow to speak. Someone who listens as God's word and God's wisdom is brought to them. Now, I want to tell you this. You have probably been hurt very badly by your friends in the past. And they've probably given you some pretty horrible advice. And they most definitely will do that in the future too. And they're going to try to come and help you, but they're going to fail. Or they might just do it in a prideful way as if they're superior to you and they see you wounded and they say, oh, let me help you. I'm so helpful. Or they're just going to give you bad advice. It's not biblical and it's going to happen. I promise you it's going to happen. But either way, if you want to have friends, at least biblical friendship, you have to allow people to do it anyways. You have to allow them to have a voice into your life. And your pride is going to make you want to shut your ears to them and open your mouth and speak to them so that they, well, you shut down anything they're saying to you. And then here's what you lose. Any potential of biblical friendship. And we need to expect more from our friends. We need to want them to be able to bring God's word to us in a good way. And we want them to be able to listen well and understand well. And give us words that heal us. We want them to be able to reach to the heights of godly friendship. But we also have to be gracious to them when they don't. Because they won't do it all the time. And you won't do it all the time. You need them to be gracious to you. Because don't think that you are God's gift to friendship. Because you're probably not. If, if you want real friendship, you have to take the risk. You have to risk listening, knowing that they might not be giving you good advice, but maybe they are. You have to consider it if they are your friend. And look, maybe they need to do a better job of listening to you. Maybe they're not doing a great job at what they're doing. Okay? It's just Corey. Come on back to me. Look, maybe, maybe they're not doing a great job. And you could tell them that. And that's okay. Here's what we have to do. We have to practice the art 
of true biblical friendship. And in order for that to happen, you have to allow people to make some mistakes. You have to allow them to give it a try. You have to allow them to learn. And you have to ask them to be patient with you as they are learning it all. And once you and they have learned the art of true biblical friendship, you're going to have words of life that are coming straight from you to them. And you're going to see it just heal their weary souls. And you're going to have friends who are brokenhearted and you're going to have the words that they need to hear in order to heal their broken heart by telling them of a love that is greater, a love that they have in Christ. You're going to have words that can give people courage in the midst of their fears. You're going to have words that will help people calm their anxiety. Words that remind you that you are forgiven. They're going to have that for you. And when you're not feeling worthy, they're going to be able to speak to you in such a way that they remind you that you are so worthy and loved by God that he was willing to give his life for you on the cross. And all of his greatness and all of his perfections then credited to you. And they're going to tell you this, and it's going to help you. And they're going to have words that are going to help you press on to become who you're made to become. And many of you have given up on having friendship like that. And it's a tragedy. And so you're going it all alone. And you're convinced that you don't need friends in your life. And that is your pride. And our culture doesn't help you much at all. Our culture says, you know what it tells you? Believe in yourself. You could do this alone. That's what Nietzsche is trying to get you to do in a lot lot of ways. But I want to tell you of a, well, look, put your faith in yourself and believe in yourself. That's what our culture is saying. And do you want me to tell you, G.K. Chesterton, you know what he said? He said, if you believe in yourself, it's lunacy. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have some self-confidence, but what he's saying, he he literally is saying that if you go to a mental place, like he, which were around in his day, you're going to find a whole bunch of people that believe in themselves fully. And there's people in their lives who are telling them that they are telling a story in their mind that they think is true that is not true at all, but they will not believe anybody. Anything that they say, they have what they believe to be true, and no matter how many people tell them it's not, they say, no, it is true. That's lunacy, and that's believing in yourself. It makes them insane. That's the characteristic. Now, let me say, there's plenty of stories of people who've had some grand idea, and there are people in their life telling them, that's dumb, what are you thinking? Don't try to chase this. And they did, and it was good that they did because they succeeded. But I I bet that you would find there, they didn't have some great friends. They had people that were competing with them. They had people that didn't care for them. They had people that didn't care what God's will was for their life, and so they just spewed out this advice that was nothing that they needed to hear. But what I want to... You need wisdom to know, okay? And we're going to get to that. But what I want you to consider right now in this moment is that you could probably do a better job listening to the people in your life. And my guess would be that it is your anger that's not letting you do it. And it's an anger that is there because you have already been wounded by your friends. And so you don't, whether in the past or right now, and so maybe you don't trust them. And you're still angry about it. And when you're angry about something, it shuts your ears and it opens your mouth. And it makes you shut, shut down any potential for biblical friendship. And I think we all, I mean, we probably all know that friend 
the one who keeps biting the hand that's trying to feed them. They're stuck in a pit, and you're trying to pull them out, and they're just slapping your hand away. And you're there for them. You've listened well, and you've finally spoken some really great words to them, and they have made you out to be their enemy. And if you don't, if, if you don't have that friend, maybe, well, maybe you're that friend, but what, you really, what, what we need to be asking is, who, what should we be looking for in friendships? It says it right here. Meekness. Meekness is a core characteristic that is needed when we are looking for friends. And, and here's what it is. If you're, they're meek, it means they're not prideful. It means that they're hearing God's word. They're receiving it. So they're the type of friends that when you speak to them, they won't have pride. They will listen to what you say. And if you are speaking God's word, it will be implanted in their soul and give them life. But they're also the kind of friends who can do that with you because they have already received God's word. You will never receive God's word if you're receiving it with pride. You will just keep knocking it down. But if you are drained of pride, you hear God's word, you now have it implanted in you, and now you have the ability to speak those words to your friends. The person who is meek is probably not what you think either. They aren't weak. The person who is meek it's not that, it's just that they don't care for power and influence. But if, if it happens to stumble upon them, they use it very well. Because they don't need it. They don't want it. They're not craving it. And so when you're looking for friends, if you have friends that want success and power and influence, then they're going to see you either, at, either as a threat or as a tool who will help them get what they want. But the perfectly meek person... If they had power, they would use it exactly the right way because it doesn't control them. They aren't, why? Because they're not seeking to build their kingdom. They're seeking to build the kingdom of God. The meek, if they have power, they give it away, and that makes them all the more powerful. They don't chase success, but if they get it, they get all the more success coming to them because they just keep giving away all the success to others. So the best definition of a meek person is this. Someone who does the will of God and lets God handle the rest. It's really simple. Our pride, our desires, our wants get in the way. What would God have you do and then do it and let God handle the rest? If you're not successful, it doesn't crush you because the most important thing for you is always, I'm just doing what God wants and that is always right and that's always good and that's always enough. And that's the kind of friend you want. Because they're not trying to build their own kingdom and seeing you as competition. They're trying to build God's kingdom. The meek are not weak. They just don't have any interest in power and that makes them all the more strong. Now, if biblical friendship is about seeking God's kingdom, then the meek are the perfect people to do that. They don't care about success and power. They care about doing what God would have them do. And that makes them really great friends. Because they'll never be jealous of you. When you are successful, they will cheer you on. They won't compete with you. They won't try to drag you down. And if they're down, they won't pull you down with them. But they'll let you pull them up. And most of all, this is the key to it all. The meek person understands their role in bringing God's kingdom, meaning you got a friend next to you 
They see their role in bringing God's kingdom. They don't have to fight with you. They don't have to compete with you. They just simply know you have a role and they have a role. And you guys are working together to accomplish God's kingdom coming. So I'm going to tell you a story that I tell you a lot. Of sto- that I tell you a lot. So in the Lord of the Rings, there's a great goal. The great goal is that there is this evil ring that has to be destroyed. And what happens is this group of unlikely people come together. And they form this fellowship of friends. I mean, this is really a story about friendship. These unlikely friends take on this aim and this goal of destroying evil. They start fighting for it. And along the way, what happens is there's, there are these two people, unlikely friends. And they're standing beside each other. You could say they're of different races or they're of different people groups. And they're about to charge into a battle that they're likely going to die in. And the one guy says to the other, I never thought I'd die next to someone of your kind. And the guy said, well, what about a friend? And he said, yeah, I could do that. That is what Christian friendship is about. Standing side by side next to someone with the same aim, the same goal. And it is the greatest goal that you could have to bring the kingdom of God's love and rule and reign here and now. And you fight beside your friend. And in that story, there's another character that reaches what I think to be the heights of friendship. And his name is Sam, and he's a gardener. And he's the gardener of this guy named Frodo, and it just so happens that Frodo has to be the hero of the story who takes the ring to be destroyed. And so Sam commits to being next to Frodo all along the way. And here's what he understands that so few people ever understand in friendship, is that in this great aim, he had a role. And he submitted to his role of helping his friend be the hero of the story. Very few people are willing to do that. And so he does it. And what happens is Frodo starts to realize this ring is corrupting everyone around him. And so he says, i got to get away from all of my friends. But Sam chases him down, almost drowns, trying to keep up with him. And he never leaves his side, even when Frodo's trying to like, tell him to get away. He stays by his side and he continues to fight for him. And I'm telling you, you guys need a Sam. Every single one of us, we need a friend who's willing to fight for us that way. A meek person. And, you know, the interesting thing is Tolkien, the guy who wrote the book, he said the real hero of the story is Sam because he understood his job in the story and he, he committed to being to, to the heights of friendship. Biblical friendship is about knowing what God's will is, how to bring his kingdom. What's God's will in your life? I mean, you need to know this. What's, what does God want from you? But I'm going to tell you something that he wants from you. If you want to reach the heights of maturity, if you want to be transformed, here's your new job. God's will for your life is to help other people in figuring out what God's will is for their life and then helping them live into it, fighting for them to live into God's purpose for their life. That's the height of friendship. That you will be drained of all of your selfish wants and desires, of all your pride, of all your desire for success and power and influence. And you simply say, how could I just help the people around me live into their great goal, God's great goal for their life? And if you do that, you're going to find yourself being transformed. You have something God wants you to do. You do, and you should chase that. 
but you also should look around and say, what does God want from all these people in this room? And how can I fight for them in helping them get there? And the key to all this is that you have the word of God that could be implanted into their soul and save their lives. That's what God's word does. Bring God's word to our friends. And all the Bible is pointing to one place, Christ, our great friend. Jesus has come as your great friend, the greatest friend of all, so that God's will for your life might happen. And his will for your life is that you would be swept up into his kingdom, that you would be with him forever, his beloved. Your beloved is his. He is yours. You are his. And so, Christ comes as your great friend to bring you into his kingdom. But you're running in the wrong direction, into sin and death. And so, as a good friend, he chases you down even when you try to push him away. Even when you tell him to get away from you, he continues to run you down and chase you down. Even though you have been lured in by death, he keeps coming. Even though you've given into evil, he keeps coming. And even though you have been lost, he's determined to make you found again. And it cost him a lot to be your friend. It cost him his life. But he says, there is no greater love than this, than someone lay down his life for his friend, and you are his friend. So he chased you into the depths, into the darkness, into death itself, and has pulled you up out of it. Because he's a good friend. So, Go to him, and you'll find yourself being a much better friend. And if we all go to him together, we're going to find this to be a community of great friendships. All right. Father, I do pray that you would teach us to be friends like this. That you would teach us how to fight for those beside us. For you, with them, and for them. God, let us stop playing around with this needless, toilsome work that we're doing where we're just chasing after our own success and our own influence and our own power and our own whatever and just see that what we need to be doing is seeking your kingdom together as one. Bind us together, God. Make us yours and let your spirit within us reach across this room so that we all might be bound to one another by this great work of Christ, our King and our friend. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.